Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today we have the opportunity to discuss the book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy, with its author, Matthew Karp, who is Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Karp. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here, Adam. Absolutely. And um, before we get into uh, your book, um, would you be able to give us a a brief description of really how you became and really kind of why you became a historian? Uh, yeah, so it started with uh, the college dropout album uh, back in the early 2000s. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We were talking about Tanya before, uh, before we started. Yeah, yeah, so, we were. Um, you know, in the news, always in the news. Um, yeah, my journey was, you know, it, it actually did begin not as a college dropout. It became as a college student more predictably. Um, yeah, I, I was actually mostly interested not in the 19th century and not – Frankly, I, at, at very first, I, I didn't think I was that interested in slavery. I wasn't not interested in it, but I was interested in U.S. foreign relations, foreign policy in the 20th century, the Cold War. My, my favorite undergraduate teacher, um, you know, taught a series of classes on American foreign relations, you know, the American empire abroad and, and um, Europe and Asia and so on. And then um, as I sort of started thinking deeper about American history, I realized like a lot of them some of the most interesting questions uh, and the way that historians wrote about 20th century U.S. foreign policy, you know, putting ideology, uh, race, geostrategic, you know, uh, confrontation with the, the, you know, the large international stakes, all of those kind of approaches weren't really present in 19th century American history. It was sort of from a foreign relations perspective, the United States in the 19th century was seen as, you know, in some sense off the main stage of European diplomacy and great power conflict, you know, in the 19th century wars and revolutions and so on. And I started thinking that this sort of as an opportunity, not that no one had written about 19th century foreign policy. Of course, there's, there, you know, uh, decades worth of, of, of writing, but it, it was often written from an international perspective in a different sort of way. And when I sort of dug deeper into uh, when I went to graduate school, uh, thinking I would push this project, uh, my, my graduate advisors, Steve Hahn and Stephanie McCurry, were, you know, really historians of slavery, uh, historians of the South and historians of, you know, African-American history. And they you know, under, you know, you know, in their hands, it was impossible for me not to see that any history of American foreign relations in the 19th century, um, for all of the kind of international implications, which I think are really important, had to have slavery at the center. And that, and yet historians in the sort of diplomatic historical, um, uh, you know, subfield, often weren't writing that way. I mean, and I'm not trying to throw shade on diplomatic historians, but, you know, the questions about American expansion, um, questions about trade and commerce, questions about, um, um, you know, U.S. relationships with Latin America. I mean, these are all really important questions, the Pacific world. But often, you know, slavery sometimes got, got bracketed in some of those conversations and, you know, was acknowledged. But what seemed really missing to me was this, um, was this, uh, was the centrality, of not just the, not of slavery, not just that the sort of the men running the State Department owned slaves, but that they their most important, in some sense, their primary political belief was uh, inve- was an investment in the preservation of the slave system. Wow, and uh, that that's definitely an important reason why we're happy to have you on the show today because you know just trying to open up people to um, areas like diplomatic diplomatic history and American foreign relations, and I think a lot of times when people think about that specifically, like when it comes to African American history, you know, a lot of people fo- a lot of people focus on um, Frederick Douglass later in his life and kind of those patronist positions to uh, Haiti and. Um, uh, what would then become DR, um, Dominican Republic as well. Um, but, you know, obviously there's an, an important layer that's still there because even though, you know, largely anyway, African-Americans were not um, enslaved and otherwise were not involved in American foreign policy for maybe obvious reasons, but um, their uh, uh, their bodies really were, <laughs> were very much the currency of American foreign policy Um yeah. And, and so um, so we got the part about, you know, why um, why you became a historian, but why this particular book, uh, um, you know, this vast southern empire? Well, you know, why why this book and why that particular title, too? Because I, I love it. By the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Well, so the title is another story that we could we, we, I, I can tell you that story. But the just in terms of the book. Yeah. So I was in I was in grad school. I was thinking about slavery and foreign relations. Um, but I, you know, there were a lot of different ways to tell that story. And at first, in in some ways, I actually thought, you know, 
this might have been a more interesting book. I was thinking about telling the story, beginning the story with the slave uh, rebellion in Louisiana in 1811. Um, kind of in, as, which is still the sort of, uh, there have been a few recent treatments of it, but it's still, I think, a relatively under the radar for the, considering that in terms of numbers of uh, enslaved people involved, it was the largest slave revolt in, you know, U.S. national history, you know, hundreds of people. In, oh my gosh, uh, Dr. Carl, in Louisiana. Yeah, 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 no, it's a, it's a, yeah, well, yeah <laughs> wow, look it up. I, I actually that. don't have like the details that's in my finger right now because I ended up moving away from that. But, um, you know, the idea was that, you know, in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, a lot of people, again, in grad school in this period were starting to think about, um, I mean, certainly Haiti was really hot. I guess Haiti's still hot. But in 10, 10 15 years ago, um, a lot of the first kind of, um, not the first, but a wave of scholarship about Haiti in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution was really breaking in early American history. And, uh, you know, the argument was that in Louisiana, I felt like there was a possibility of thinking about this revolt in international terms as a kind of, um, as a, you know, a, a, an event that, you know, is only understandable if you think about a kind of international battle between slavery and freedom. It was happening in the Caribbean, it was happening uh, in Latin America, and it was happening in the United States, and that a lot of these slaves were influenced by um, Creole planters fleeing Haiti and bringing their, you know, enslaved people with them. And then that, you know, I think the, the history of the revolt bears out that there was some influence there. Um, and you know, I was thinking of starting it there, and I ended up not doing it just because there was you know, too much happening in the later antebellum period, especially with these slave holders. I never sort of found my way back there. Um, but uh, but the, the book that was resulted was, was definitely, you know, um, uh, shared that same uh, fundamental conception of this idea of a, of, a, of a kind of a global Cold War, sometimes a hot war between slavery and freedom starting in the, you know, late 18th century with the American Haitian and French revolutions and that sort of unleashed the, the sort of the possibility of political struggles for, for freedom, for abolition and, and made those struggles live and they flickered on and off for the next hundred years, really. And, you know, it, 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 it struck me that in the mid 19th century with, again, there was a lot of scholarship coming out around this time too. I mean, I, I sort of, you know, said something earlier about, I hope I wasn't too harsh on diplomatic history because, um, Actually, I was very influenced by a lot of the new scholarship on slavery that was really internationalizing the problem of slavery in the early 2000s. Ed Rogamer's book on the Caribbean emancipation, Gerald Horn's book on um, the United States and Brazil, the deepest South. Um, uh, there was, you know, these were more historians of, of slavery in some sense. But, you know, well, you know, Gerald Horn is a, is a historian of foreign relations. Anyway, they were starting thinking about slavery in this international context. And for me, it, it just became clear that the strongest defender of slavery in this critical period in the mid 19th century, when slavery was actually growing, you know, it had weathered the kind of first wave of abolition, post-revolutionary abolition. Uh, it had weathered these, the, the, the threat posed by the Haitian revolution in some sense. And in fact, you know, historians of the quote unquote second slavery will tell you that, you know, there were more enslaved uh, people, enslaved goods, enslaved, you know, profits from slavery in 1860 than there had been in 1815 or 1830, uh, you know, even after British abolition and um, even before British abolition. So in, in this period, it, it became clear that the United States, not any of these other places, not Cuba, not Brazil, uh, nowhere, but the United States was the sort of leading champion of slavery on this in this entire Atlantic world. Um, and I needed to go deeper into into thinking about who these slaveholders were that were running, you know, you know, the American government on behalf of um, kind of international, what you could call the kind of pro-slavery international. Right. And so as well, um, with that particular point, when you also look at uh, other portions of your book that I thought were really so profound when we look at the founding of the nation uh, with what, what there's one particular um, number uh, where a large majority of the uh, American presidents from, you know, uh, Washington on until Lincoln, um, they, the majority of them are, if not slaveholders, they're also people who are um, involved in some way with, uh, with uh, with slavery, and so when I think about it, when I when I when I read that um, in your book and or other ways in in your book and in other uh, uh, works as well, when I was getting ready for the interview, I was thinking like, good grief, that 
that that's something I I don't honestly always think about, but it, it just goes really to show, you know, slavery's importance to, you know, the form, not only the formation of the nation, but, you know, the, the weathering, like you said, of the, um, of the, uh, of, of the periods of, of abolition and, and, and how American, uh, foreign policy was always really thinking about that, um, as, as far as, you know, how to, comport and contort itself uh, to folks like the British or to these other nations who are beginning to free their enslaved people while also realizing like, hey, there's a financial component of this too. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. That, I mean, so yeah, the numbers are very stark. If you just, I mean, from, you know, from 1788, you know, from the, to 1860, uh, before the Civil War, uh, I think the you know you had John Adams had a four year term from Massachusetts. You had John Quincy Adams for another four years, and then you had two Northern presidents in the 1850s who were in effect really sort of tools of the slave power, Pierce and Buchanan. Um, and then you had two years of Millard Fillmore in there too. He 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 goes in that category also. Uh, so that's that's eighteen only eighteen of the first. I'm just doing these numbers in my head. I should have this number. The first basically the first seventy two years you had fifty six. 56 of them, the United States was governed, you know, the chief magistrate was a slaveholder. And really, it's really more like 66, because the only the only kind of truly non slaveholding administrations were at the Adams administrations for just four years apiece. So but in some sense, that doesn't even really that's just the big that's just the starting point, right? Um, what, what, it goes so much deeper when you think about cabinets and you think about, um, you know, uh, the War Department and in, in for my particular case, the, the War Department and the State Department. Um, du Bois has a pretty amazing calculation, which I haven't actually double checked his numbers. But um, Eric Foner told me I was talking about this. He was like, you might want to check Du Bois's numbers on that. I was like, all right, well, we'll see. I'll just say Du Bois said it. If he was wrong, he could bear the blame. Uh, you know, 80 of 134, you know, um, American diplomats. Uh, uh, were, were slaveholders. Um, uh, certainly, I mean, even if the numbers are, are off here by a by a by a by a, a, a small fraction, it's a, the proportion is still overwhelming. Given you know how you know how uh, most Americans were not were not from the north, not from the south, and most were not slaveholders, and so they really had this grip over the over the government. Where my, what my book does though is not rather than I actually don't want to flatten the early American Republic all the way to the Civil War because I think there really was a profound turn in around the 1830s. Not that, you know, Washington and Jefferson weren't interested in the protection of slave property, because they absolutely were, and you can see this in, in Jefferson's reaction to the Haitian Revolution and so on. Um, but I don't think, and not that they weren't interested in American expansion and the expansion of slavery to go along with it, because you can see that in the Louisiana Purchase, you can see that under Andrew Jackson, obviously in the in the, the Creek War, and then uh, the, the Indian Wars of the 1830s and 40s. But I think from a from a kind of a strategic point of view uh, and from an and from an ideological point of view in terms of the international ambition of the project, it really shifted after British abolition, because that's when you for the first time you really had a a, a peer world power and, and actually a far more powerful uh, world power uh, that was now lined up against this fundamental institution of the United States before before 1833. The U.S. didn't have to be the global champion of slavery because Virtually every major European power already was doing that. You know, you had somebody like John Randolph saying, well, you know, OK, hate, the Haitian Revolution is scary. But if, um, you know, if, if there's a if they try to conquer Cuba and free the slaves in Cuba, Britain will, Britain will snuff it out in the 1820s because Britain was invested in, you know, its own slave societies in Jamaica and elsewhere in the in the Caribbean. So in a sense, the United States, ha- in, a, in a beyond the, the outside of the North American continent, the U.S. could kind of pass the buck on pro-slavery enforcement. After 1833, that's no longer the case. Just strategically, Britain is now invested uh, in uh, in being in an anti-slavery foreign policy, which, you know, um, was more aggressive in some places than in others. But certainly, you know, when slave ships crash land, you know, when slave ships wrecked on in Bermuda and other British islands, you know, the slave enslaved people were free by the colonial authorities. So we, we, we're not, we don't, slavery doesn't exist on British soil anymore. And, um, you know, I was like, huh, this, 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 this cannot stand. And in fact, the United States is going to have to step up and kind of assume, um, you know, and this fits with the growth of American power and capacity over the course of the previous 50 years. But by the 1830s, the United, by the 1840s, really when my book starts, the United States both has this sort of need um, given British abolition and the strategic capacity, the kind of 
wait um, to, to sort of develop a, a more pro- aggressive pro-slavery foreign policy. It wasn't just about the mere protection of slave property, but about, or even territorial expansion, but about something beyond that, about alliances with other slaveholder regimes, about a kind of uh, naval force that could contend with British power at sea, uh, and about uh, a kind of a vision of the United States as a sort of hemispheric, if not a global power that was invested in uh, in, in slave property and in, in a future where slavery was at the center of the world economy. And and that is why um, and something that I didn't mention to you um, offline was uh, when I, when I, we, you talk about the 1830s and the 1840s and how. You know, that is a very, very pivotal time, especially in the post-1833, 1834 moment. Um, And I always got to go back to Texas, right? I I never lived in Texas, but where I used to work, um, I used to work at uh, Fort Scott National Historic Site, which is the namesake of uh, of Winfield Scott. Um, And so, uh, you know, obviously Winfield Scott is an important uh, U.S. Army uh, general. Um, and so uh, I used to uh, intern actually at um, Fort Scott National Historic Site in Fort Scott, Kansas. And so that is a space where its influence is is literally only because of this of the uh, Mexican-American War um, and, and, and the, the territorial expansion when you have uh, uh, what goes on in, in, in Texas and uh, in Mexican uh, in Mexico's uh, Texas and then in, uh, in uh, the, the, the Independent Republic of Texas and then obviously uh, when it, when it uh, is annexed to the United States. Um, and so can you talk about that particular uh, how you know the figures in your book, how they, thought of Texas? Because I think Texas is almost a metaphor in American public life today of, you know, it's like the Texas Rangers, it's the hat, it's the cowboys, it's the cattle, right? It's a very, you know, there's a particular aesthetic if you close your eyes. And it's also it's important with, with internationally because a lot of times when people try to come from elsewhere outside of the United States to come in and visit in the United States, what I found out were a lot of people, you have uh, um, companies, you have travel companies who want to go to the heartland. They want to go to, you know, quote unquote, the real America. Um, and so Texas has a particular mystique that I think even in this time was being uh, formulated in the in largely in the minds of some of many of the figures in your book. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's the, you know, what's the sort of uh, famous line about California that it's like America, only more so. Uh, you can say that about Texas in a different register, right? In a different, from a different perspective, Texas is America only more so. Um, one thing, but what's interesting is I, I think in a lot of ways in the kind of contemporary incarnations of, of sort of Texas, you know, the Texas mystique, um, it, it, what's emphasized often is the sort of westernness of Texas. You know, you have George W. Bush at his ranch in Crawford. You have the Rangers, exactly. And so, you know, that's another story. And Texas is a obviously a site of Western history, a site of, uh, you know, uh, you know, wars with the Comanche people and so on. Um, and that's part of Texas history. Absolutely. In, in a sense, what my book is doing is sort of recovering, not, and I'm not hardly the first one to do this, but um, from an international perspective, recovering the southernness of Texas. You know, the Texas is is like America, but it's a particular kind of America. It was an independent slaveholding republic. I mean, its future, uh, when it broke away from Mexico, the, the, the causes, Andrew Torgett has a book about this, about American emigrants to Texas in the 1830s. So uh, I had a grad, old grad school friend, Sarah Rodriguez, has written about this. She's at Arkansas now. Her book's going to come out and be a banger about this uh american american immigrants moving to texas in effect um for a number of different reasons but setting up a slave society in in mexico when 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 tejas was a province of mexico um and the role of slavery in the texas revolution was significant um so from 1835 to 1845 when texas exists as an independent state i mean in a lot of ways its defining characteristic was that um its entire well, slavery, its entire economic, um, the, the premise of its future economic development, um, you know, and, and even Jefferson knew about this way before Texas was was an independent province, was an independent republic, was was, was the idea of, of cotton, rice and sugar were the 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 possible growth of um, goods with the help of enslaved labor in Texas. Um, that was 
how Texas was envisioning itself. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, rangers going off into the bush and kind of, you know, fighting Indians or, or, or outlaws. Uh, you know, the economic basis of Texas was slavery, especially in this early period. And, um, you know, so from the perspective of American slaveholders, Texas is a valuable and a vulnerable um, slaveholding ally in this period after British abolition in this kind of uncertain zone uh, in, the, in the heels of British abolition. Because you're right, it's 1833, 1834 is British emancipation, the, the acts are passed, and then Texas kind of achieves its independence, you know, wins its war with Mexico in 1835 too. And in this kind of uncertain zone, uh, American slaveholders, are, they're eager to annex Texas. But my argument is it's not just because they want that land, although they do, that's obviously there and there's an abundant evidence to, to, to prove it in abundant literature on the subject. But they also want to preserve Texas slavery from uh, from Britain, from Mexico, from other forces in the region that are, you know, lined up against the expansion and the entrenchment of slavery. You know, there are British diplomats in Texas that American slaveholders fear are trying to negotiate with the Texas government. Okay, we'll recognize you and give you protection and kind of help the independent Republic of Texas flourish if you agree to sort of a gradual emancipation plan. I mean, that that deal is basically on the table for Sam Houston and uh, various other Texan officials. Now, it's not likely that they would have ever taken that deal. They were committed to slavery. They didn't really see an economic future outside of slavery. But um, they certainly flirted with the British. Sam Houston says something like, I coquetted with them a little bit in order to sort of, um, you know, gain potential British support against Mexico, against, you know, against, uh, you know, this was a very weak, vulnerable republic. The United States, for, for people like John C. Calhoun, Abel Upshur, in the, in the administration of John Tyler at this period, they're worried about Texas um, uh, falling into the lap of the British, uh, potentially being reconquered by Mexico. And, uh, you know, sort of the, the future of slavery on the North American continent, the Western Hemisphere is at stake here. So the annexation of Texas is about American expansion, but it's also about uh, slavery's uh, preservation. And, um, you know, the, I think there's a guy, there's a Texas guy in Washington diplomat who says something like the slave interest in North America can only be safe if it is consolidated under one government. And uh, I think there's something to that, that, you know, we, we OK, it's nice to have another slaveholding regime, but we're going to be Way stronger, and we're going to have much more power to project slavery if Texas joins uh, the American Republic. So, most of the Sam Houston was actually probably the most independent minded of these Texans. Most of the rest of the Texas sort of political leadership class, you know, slaveholders, pro slavery guys, they wanted in on the United States as quickly as possible. Um, and that was achieved, you know, in 1844, 1845, and did, as you say, lead immediately to the Mexican-American War. But in a lot of senses, the annexation of Texas was, I think I say something like the quintessential achievement of this foreign policy of slavery. It's a moment where, uh, in the absence of a kind of a, this aggressive pro-slavery analysis of a Cold War between um, between slavery and freedom, I think it is questionable whether the United States would have annexed Texas. I mean, um it, you know, the truth is Andrew Jackson didn't wasn't gung-ho about bringing Texas into the Republic in 1835. I mean, this is a question that I've been asked. Why Why does it take until 1845? Why does it, why, why don't, you know, I mean, w w was Andrew Jackson, you know, not committed enough to slavery? I don't think that's it. But I think the, it required the much more aggressive pro-slavery geopolitical analysis of guys like Calhoun, Upshur, and Tyler, who were willing to risk the political, uh, A, the domestic political uh, blowback from Northerners and Whigs who didn't want any part of Texas, and were willing to, and were willing to sort of, uh, you know, had a sense of uh, an international future in which slavery, the protection of slavery was not just part of the American project, but at the core of the American project. And I think that is one way in which Tyler Calhoun, Upshur outdid even Andrew Jackson on that front. Right. And I also think about uh, your your comments um, about John Tyler made me think about back in grade school. Um, and then this probably happened to you, too, where you have to you have like a civics test, right? Or you have American history test where you're tested on the, uh, on all the American presidents um, up to a particular point. So, you know, uh, a hollow point being uh, 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 President Lincoln. Right. And so it made me think like your book actually made me think about who are the presidents once we leave like uh, 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 Monroe. Right. What are the ones you know? I've, and, and, I, and I bring that point up because John Tyler, I think, is one of the more forgotten presidents. But he's 
he to me is he you know uh, 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 uh he was one of the more intri- interesting uh and intriguing figures in your entire book not necessarily because of the entirety of what he did but it's more so to the point that his importance is so so much there but how we acknowledge him in the pantheon of presidents is very minuscule but he's very much important and very uh, uh, present to how we are presently constituted um, as, as, a, as, a, as a country. Um, and so, um, yeah, because, you know, that, that, that's what I'm saying. So I, that's, so thank you for bringing back old, old lessons from, for, from, from grade school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, do you remember which one you had to do? Um, let's see. I remember, um, actually, no, it was typically to the civil war. It was typically to the Civil War that we had to do. And I remember um, it was uh, AP U- uh, U.S. history uh, or right. you know, AP uh, uh, American government, uh, um, U.S. government in, in high school in 2009, 2010 in Winter Park, Florida, Winter Park High School. There you go. <laughs> uh, shout out. Um, and I remember I was like that guy. Everybody knew like smart guy, Adam McNeil. <laughs> but boy, so did I you. tell you, they, 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 they did not like me after that because we had a team, right? And so we had to be like, all right, so, so, uh, so my team, they put me in. It was like a debate, right? And so you're going up against the other part of the class, right. and everybody was like, Adam, 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 Adam. <laughs> but for some odd reason, but for some odd reason, I went cold after I think, you know, oh, I think I went cold. I choked. <laughs> I choked like the Raptors did in game one. So I, I, I choked. I, I missed 11 straight shots. And, and I remember that. And that was that was a, almost 10 years ago. But I remember it as clear as day. Um, you went, uh, I'll show my age. You went John Starks in Eastern Conference Finals back in the uh, 90s. Yes, yeah. yes. You my hit nothing but iron. Yeah. Yep. My family's yeah. all from New York and they're Knicks fans. And so they still remember that. They still <laughs> yeah. remember that. Uh, uh, <laughs> brief, brief, brief aside, of course. Um, but, but I think all of this brings up, you know, even in a playful manner, you know, how important um, the annexation of Texas right. and that whole process is because as well, what it does, it kind of internationalizes the minds of, 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 of many of the Americans who went in and actually fought in that war because, you know, a lot of times people saw themselves as, you know, citizens of their individual states and not necessarily in a, a collective American consciousness, but in the, Ameri- in, in the Mexican-American War, um, at least from my, you know, cursory understanding of the conflict, you started to see, you know, people going down to Veracruz in Mexico, going down into, you know, other areas of Mexico, and they internationalized them in the sense of they are fighting on behalf of the country. Hmm. Um, yeah. That- and so, uh, oh, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. No, 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 and that—that that was the last part. But it, that you know, that your book and, and and this process made me go back in my thoughts uh, about you know the conscience of what an American is. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'll come back. It was just to, just as quickly on John Tyler. Uh, it's funny. Right, it's right, funny. Right, right, just right. just on. Uh, I mean, the best biography of him is is by Ed Kraepel. It's called The Accidental President. It doesn't have any other. Um, you know, it's, oh. it's it's not like <laughs> it's not buttering him up wow. in any way. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's most famous for being the you know the first president who wasn't elected. Uh, you know, he came into office when William Henry Harrison, you know, spoke too long on a cold day and got pneumonia and, and you know, f- you know, kind of uh, uh, crapped out after, you know, a handful of days in office. And Tyler came. But I think mm-hmm. the accidental aspect of Tyler's presidency is sort of I mean, it is a contingent moment, but it's an important moment in American history. Because, yeah, I, I think in, in the in the space, certainly between, um, you know, Jackson and Lincoln in that, you know, 30 year window, I think it's arguable that there was no president who was more um influential than Tyler. Some people would point to Polk. I mean, this is the Mexican-American War, but you don't get the Mexican-American War without the annexation of Texas. And that's Tyler's baby. You know, he insisted on that kind of against, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the received wisdom of both established parties. Uh, Tyler's, you know, commitment to slavery, in effect, I think, I mean, it was a it was a nationalist commitment. I don't think he was actually a sectionalist. This ties into your Mexican War point. I mean, this is a th- recurring theme in the book, that these Southerners who were sort of wielding American foreign policy, uh, you know, to acquire Texas, say, or uh, to conduct a war against Mexico uh, in the Polk administration, they 
they really didn't, uh, you know, including I think to a significant extent, even John C. Calhoun in the in the in the early 1840s did not see themselves as sectionalists in any kind of um, in any kind of candid way. They understood themselves, definitely the case for John Tyler, as nationalists. I mean, slavery and American nationalism were not opposed terms. It wasn't like if you supported slavery, you had to be a sectionalist as a Southerner. Slavery was national and slavery was international. And the, the, you know, the, the default assumption for, for somebody like, you know, for Tyler's secretary of the Navy, say Abel Upshur, who then moved on to secretary of state and conducted this treaty, uh, you know, sort of wrote the first Texas annexation treaty, um, was that, you know, enhancing the power of the United States, whether it's through building a sort of a a stronger Navy or whether it's annexing Texas, would only enhance the power of slavery. It's like that, uh, the the, the Texan I was talking about earlier, that the slave interest is enhanced with a consolidation of national power. And um, so when, 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 when Tyler annexed Texas, I mean, he set in, in motion a whole series of events, um, you know, certainly leading it. I think it virtually made the Mexican-American War inevitable. Obviously, Polk um, following in that tradition, uh, you know, in some ways he wasn't quite as an extreme pro-slavery man as Tyler. He was more of a national Democrat in the Jackson vein. But, um, you know, he certainly wanted to protect slavery and, and preserve the achievement of Texas annexation. And uh, yeah. and and the Mexican-American War, it's interesting what you said about that. Um, that is another sort of theme in the book. Often the, the, the that war is treated for historians of the Civil War era. You know, the Mexican-American War, you know, you can't read, you know, Jim McPherson's book on, you know, Battle Cry of Freedom or... Um, you know, actually the big, I think the big George Herring book, The History of American Foreign Relations, you know, from colony to superpower, yep. all sorts of giant surveys of U.S. history in this period. The American War functions as a kind of um, ominous warning about the sectional crisis ahead. You know, you're acquiring all this land and it's that territory that ultimately is going to provoke the North and the South to fall out over the extension of slavery. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. But in the moment, um, this was not a sectional conflict. I mean, the the and the largely Southern leaders and generals, including Winfield Scott, who executed um, and sort of commanded uh, both the diplomacy leading up to the war and then the war itself um, and the treaty following the war, uh, did, you know, they were, they were disproportionately Southern. They were disproportionately slavery, slaveholding. And, but they saw themselves as Americans. And I think, um, the, the, the conquest of Northern Mexico was, uh, and, you know, the conquest of California, New Mexico, et cetera. Uh, and then the negotiation of peace with Mexico was, um, you know, they, again, enhancing the slavery interest and enhancing American power were not oppose, opposing goals. They were compatible. And by making the United States a kind of really a truly, I think the, you know, a truly intercontinental empire with interests, not just in the Atlantic world, but in the Pacific world um, that, you know, you know, uh, you know, through, through California, um, you know, slaveholders saw that as sort of enhancing the power of slavery, you know, globally. Right. And, and something, um, that also made, you know, that, that also really conjured up some thoughts to me is that when we think about what's also going on, you know, a point to revert back a, a brief second um, when we talked about uh, a British abolition, right? Because I think something that's starting to really be uh, 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 written about a lot, especially in the context of uh, what's happening in the Windrush debate right now, which is happening presently in, in Britain about uh, the 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 citizenship of of those of the uh, of of uh, Commonwealth nations, right? Who left in the nineteen um, in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties? What made me think about this was that even in the context of British abolition, imperialism was something where you know racism and imperialism were very or racism, imperialism, colonialism are all really intertwined, and kind of how. The United States is looking at the British, looking at what they're doing elsewhere um, in the world, so looking to India, looking to um, uh, looking to Australia, looking to uh, um, really the Pacific Islands as well, and, and other places within the the the, the British Empire, and um, how American uh, uh, slaveholders are even looking and and, and linking kind of of their perceptions of of their what they're doing so i i don't know if that's uh 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 fluent i guess in what i'm trying to say but 
No, I think I understand what you're talking about. I mean, just the international stakes of this conflict, right? Is I mean, I think the way in which slavery and empire were overlapping forces in, I mean, it's complicated. I mean, it's, you think about the British case. I mean, I think actually a lot of the writing, the historic, the sort of historical literature on this question has really emphasized, and, and not wrongly, the relationship between anti-slavery and empire, right? And the way in which the British Empire is sort of after 1833, there's a good book by Richard Hussey about this that's more recent, but this tradition goes back a long way, that the British Empire ab- abolished sort of specific, you know, chattel slavery in the West Indies in the 1830s. But in a sense, in, in for the rest of the 19th century, um, Britain mobilizes anti-slavery, um, uh, anti-slavery sentiment and the kind of anti-slavery justifications often to sort of conduct other imperial policy in, say, in, you know, most prominently in Africa, when, you know, in the 1870s, um, you know, the British penetration of West Africa uh, and, you know, what would become much of much of British West Africa was justified by the need to sort of abolish slavery, you know, African slavery in Africa. And so, you know, it can get weaponized as it also becomes used, you know, David, Brian Davis sort of, you know, argued this, that, you know, anti-slavery gets weaponized and affected to defend industrial capitalism. Other people have argued it gets weaponized to defend the British empire writ large, that, okay, we're an anti-slavery power. You know, in a sense, Chris, Chris Brown's book makes this point to some extent as in the earlier period, we're an anti-slavery power. And that justifies that we, you know, we can maintain our empire in India or, you know, in the rest of Asia and then later in Africa, um, because, uh, you know, you know, you know, what distinguishes us are sort of, um, the, you know, the, the fig leaf of our, of our moral integrity in some sense is our opposition to slavery. And that's all, you know, powerful scholarship. That's really important. But what's really interesting in this period in the Atlantic world is that, um, that kind of anti-slavery imperialism of Great Britain. So I'm not trying to write Britain a kind of a blank check here in terms of, um, what, what, what the British Empire is up to in the mid-19th century. But the truth is that um, in the Western Hemisphere, you know, British anti-slavery did matter. And it did kind of, it counted a lot both for these slaveholders who, you know, were trying to respond to it, but it also did count a lot for enslaved people who really did see, um, you know, and, and Gerald Horn and others have written about this, who really did see, um, you know, Britain as a potential and in some cases an actual ally in 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 a in a kind of larger transnational struggle against against uh, against slavery. Uh, certainly, you know, against the slave trade. Um, you know, the British Navy was instrumental in kind of cracking down on the slave trade and kind of pushing Brazil, say, in the in the eighteen forties, um, to accept a you know uh, a reduction and an elimination in a sense of the slave trade. Um, now there were plenty of cracks in that in that curtain. You know, plenty of enslaved people were still being shipped across especially to Cuba in the 1850s and even in the 60s. But nevertheless, this was a real live struggle that really counted. And just because anti-slavery gets used as a fig leaf to justify empire elsewhere, the truth is there was a collision between anti-slavery imperialism of Great Britain and the pro-slavery imperialism of the United States. And that collision had momentous consequences, not just for places like Texas and California, um, but for you know places like Brazil and Cuba. Exactly. And, and and something uh I remember um I think it was Senator Ted Cruz in the previous presidential election uh talked about how America does not pick winners and losers, you know, when it comes to uh um, you know, who's quote unquote wins in America and in the world. But then I also thought like that can't be true because when you look at, you know, the United States when when it comes to imperialism, right? In territorial expansion, not only in the in the continental north uh, in the continental North America, but right when you have slaveholders as at the helm of foreign American foreign policy, many of the figures that you talk about, which I thought was so enlightening, was that they are trying to. And I wrote a little bit about this in my thesis too, uh, where you have uh, um, uh, uh, folks at the helm of American foreign policy who are trying to expand slavery into you know, uh, or not necessarily expand slavery, but take over territory um, to expand American uh, um, uh, slavery centrally. And so I thought like, wow, that, you know, so when you look at, you know, areas of um, of South America, Central America as well. Um, and so, you know, that, that to me was something that was profound, especially when you look at someone like Jefferson Davis, where it's almost like when we look at towards the Confederacy later, the people who, uh, uh, who who got taught really what a foreign policy really was in the Confederacy, you know, specifically when they're trying to look towards like Britain and France, they were taught 
by, you know, uh, the United States. So really it was like a training school, right, to kind of uh, uh, flip, you know, Ulrich Phillips' thoughts about uh, slavery on its head briefly. Um, it was a training school for uh, uh, American uh, uh, or for, for Confederate um, uh, uh, folks just in general, because because when you look at uh, Jefferson Davis, right, what is he doing? He's expanding what, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was him, who who attempted to uh, and, and was successful in expanding the U.S. Navy. Um, U.S. Army, U.S. Army, U.S. Yeah. Army, U.S. Army, there you go. And so, um, you know, that was something that was profound to me, was I thought like, man, this is something that when we think about states' rights, you, at least in my mind, automatically conjures the thought of conservatism. But conservatism not necessarily because you know you're trying to expand something nationally right that's the antithesis of conservatism yeah you know that's really interesting you know i toyed with that question of conservatism actually i remember i kind of got an argument with stephanie mccurry in grad school where i was sort of saying like well how conservative are they if you know actually what they're attempting to do because the book argues that you know, slaveholders are making both with their foreign and military policies, but in their in their writing and thinking about the future of the world, they're making a daring leap into modernity, that they have a kind of pro-slavery progressive ideology. And she ended up sort of convincing me that it probably wasn't worthwhile to like stake my book on an interpretation, a kind of a murky interpretation of what conservative is, is because it can mean a lot of things. And to be honest, that's not my, you know, you know, you know, that kind of you know, political theory isn't my forte. But what what um, what's significant, though, in what you said, is that um, certainly they weren't small government, um, you know, sort of laissez-faire states' rights conservatives in, in that respect. They were definitely big government conservatives when it came to foreign policy. Um, they, you know, they combined, I think they did genuinely, again, because, it, it, you know, for, for, for reasons that had to do with slavery, they genuinely, these slaveholders like Davis, gen, genuinely opposed the expansion of the federal government in domestic policy. Calhoun and Davis adamant about, you know, in opposition to, um, you know, federal spending, um, you know, that would imply a kind of the federal government's role, uh, infringement of state rights in terms of uh, internal improvements, in terms of, um, you know, infrastructure, in terms of any kind of, you know, the effort to set up a Department of Agriculture, any kind of domestic spending, um, you know, and the, the conventional interpretation, which is right, I think, is that, you know, that kind of expansion of federal power could potentially undermine the slaveholder, a slaveholding control of state governments, which were, you know, what made slavery legal, you know, slavery was not official. I mean, they argued it was in the constitution, but the, their, their last line of resort was the state governments. And then also this, just the slaveholders direct control over the property of, you know, their, you know, the enslaved people under them. So that, that, that in, in a sense that an expanded, uh, empowered federal government domestically could interfere in a kind of indirect way, ultimately with, you know, slaveholders control over their slaves. And that's right. And so that did inform their kind of small government conservatism. But that only goes so far as domestic policy. When it came to foreign policy, um, they were very aggressive about wanting to enhance national power, about wanting to in, in expand the government, about expand the army, expand the navy. They passed all sorts of civil service, um, you know, foreign service reform. They wanted to buff up the diplomatic corps because it wasn't just about fighting wars. It was about uh, expanding American influence internationally. And, yeah, Davis was an important figure in this. And in that sense, he was not kind of back. I mean, this is another thing. Like, is it conservative to be backward looking, forward looking? I mean, these slaveholders were not just looking back to a kind of bygone age that they wanted to protect themselves from the onslaught of modernity. They saw the world was changing and they were changing along with it. Slavery was was adapting and um, sort of uh, uh, transforming itself to suit the evolutions of the modern world, the rise of industrial capitalism, while slavery, you know, slave societies were producing more cotton than ever to suit the, to fit the British and Northern textile factories. You know, uh, you have mass consumer culture. Well, then we're going to bump up our production of coffee and sugar. We're going to bring railroads into the South, into Cuba, into Brazil. We're going to, um, we're going to mechanize, you know, sugar plantations. You know, if you look at some of these photos of sugar plantations in, in Cuba in the 1850s, I mean, they look almost futuristic. It's incredible. The level of technology, Technological um, ingenuity that was going into, you know, making these slave plantations function. Um, you know, there were railroads in Cuba before there were railroads in Spain. You know, th this this is the argument of people who study the second slavery that you know that this kind of mid nineteenth century modern industrializing capitalism wasn't um, beyond even the United States wasn't incompatible with slavery. Uh, it just sort of 
in fact, it was very compatible with this slaveholding regime to an extent that uh, it allowed them to expand their production and to, to sort of fit this new demand for these slave produced goods. Now, in the long run, was there going to be a collision between slavery and capitalism? I actually think there was. So in that sense, I'm sort of old school. But in the short term, in the 1840s and 1850s, from a slaveholding perspective, no, these two things were very compatible and slaveholders could eagerly embrace global capitalism and an expanded state power internationally uh, to, to advance the interests of slavery. Wow. All, all, all important, important points. Um, and so, you know, going, you know, going a little bit further in the chronology of the book, too, one of the things that I yeah. thought was, you know, very profound um in the book was about how uh, the birth of the Confederacy comes about um, in the waning moments, really, of the um, of the 1850s and 1860s. Um, and so looking at how, you know, because I think one of the one of the interesting things about it is you still have people who are involved in government towards the end of, you know, the 1850s uh, going into the year 1860. And when obviously President Lincoln is um, elected, um, you know, all, all hell breaks loose, or I would have said another word, but, you know, <laughs> try not to use that on these airways. Um, and so, you know, thinking about how influential the folks in power were, uh, who were either slaveholders or very much connected to slaveholding um, in general, at least financially, I always think about how intriguing it is when they effectively remove themselves from from the American central government to found something else yeah. and kind of like the maybe maybe this might be too highfalutin but you know kind of like the brain power and the brain trust um that leaves as well and obviously it's replaced by others you know like secretary wars and other things but kind of like what that does to really not only found the new uh, a nation, the Confederacy, but also kind of how they had used particular ideology while in the United States government that they try to contort within the newfound Confederacy that doesn't necessarily, you know, align with their prior thoughts, especially within the foreign policy lens as well. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I like that metaphor. I like the idea of like removing a brain trust. I think that's that's pretty much that's uh, that's like pretty much, you know, a distillation, uh, a really nice distillation of, of, of my argument about about secession. You know, these guys, I mean, for one, just just thinking, you know, just on the ground when Lincoln is elected in 1860 and the Republican Party has triumphed and has kind of seized, you know, the executive branch of the government. You know, they're they're they realize they're facing um, you know an opponent that has that is un, that is different in a fundamental way from every other American political party that has taken power. I mean, you had Democrats, you know, like like Jackson or like uh, Pierce or Buchanan. You had Whigs like po- like um, uh, like Tyler or Fillmore, and slaveholders were involved in all of that, you know, and, and at the center of it. You know, increasingly, it's true that the Democratic Party became the home in the antebellum years of the most aggressive pro-slavery force. But there were always pro-slavery Whigs who were participating in this effort, um, and uh, and but with the Republican Party, you don't have that. It's a it's a they're they're completely frozen out. It's an entirely northern party, and the whole you know raison d'etre, you know the whole reason for being. Um, you get you get a taste of my bad French there. I should stay away from those words. Uh, the whole reason for the Republican Party's existence was the opposition to slavery's expansion. So they're not gonna, they're, they're not gonna, they, they can't be bargained with. They can't be like, oh, maybe you'll appoint one of us to be your Secretary of State. That's not gonna happen. There's no future for the foreign policy of slavery in the Union at this point. So the question becomes, what what are we gonna do about it? And what's remarkable is, I think, because it is a brain trust of nationalist figures, is that even then, someone like Jefferson Davis is not leading the charge to secede. He still thinks, well, let's at least negotiate with the, these new anti-slavery leaders, and maybe we can actually sort of push them a little bit to to retain a kind of a foothold in this in this you know in this national government because they really are attached, as you as you put it so well, they really are attached to their position of power at like the at the upper echelons of the state, and it's only the people at the state level. It's the more um, 
the the sort of um, the the state level politicians who are more rabid for secession, who haven't really been running the government. You know, the the fire eaters, you know, the Yanceys and the Rets and stuff, who are the sort of most vocal, but even sort of less well known. You know, you know, uh, state level politicians. You know, the guy in South Carolina is literally named States Rights Gist. Is like the the, the governor of South Carolina, uh, or not the governor, but he's the envoy of of from South Carolina who goes out to sort of convince the other states to secede. It's these kind of lower level guys in the South who actually trigger secession. And it's only when Lincoln and the Republicans make it clear that they're not going to compromise on slavery. It's only then that the brain trust itself pulls itself back and says, okay, we're going to support secession. And that's when, um, you know, South Carolina is a different case. South Carolina was out the door. You know, South Carolina, you know, had one foot out the door since the 1830s. But the the other states don't secede until it's clear that compromise fails. So that, you know, date Jefferson Davis in Mississippi, uh, Alexander Stevens, who never wanted to go in Georgia, uh, you know, Judah Benjamin and John Slidell in Louisiana. A lot of these guys who had important national positions, whether, you know, in the U.S. Senate or in the State Department, the War Department, they're not Howell Cobb in Georgia, who was Secretary of the Treasury. They're sticking around in Washington, hoping to figure out a deal where they can still you know, have access when it's clear that the Republicans are, you know, there's no deal here. We won the election. We're going to have an anti-slavery administration. That's when they pull out and they say, okay, well, we're going to set up our own, uh, our own, our own regime. And this is the second part of the argument is that the reason they had the confidence to do that, I mean, because it's a crazy suicidal thing to do. I mean, they ensured their own destruction with this with this move in 1860-61. You know, they brought on the Civil War. And, you know, within four years, not only was um, not only was the Confederacy defeated, slavery, you know, slavery domestically was destroyed and slavery internationally. Um, the writing was on the wall. But the reason they had the confidence to pull this off, I think it really does require explanation. A, they were frozen out. They were pushed out of the union by these Republicans. And B, uh, they really believed that slavery could survive on the world stage. I mean, this is an important part if we think about the origin of the Confederacy. They really believed that the Confederacy would find allies, maybe not direct military allies, but at least find aid and support, at least acceptance in this sort of international, the arena of nations. Um, And that there was nothing about slavery that prohibited it from joining, prohibited a slaveholding regime from joining the family of nations in the mid-19th century. I mean, and they pointed to all sorts of international phenomena that, you know, from their perspective showed how compatible slavery was with, uh, you know, you know, global capitalism, with the spread of global empire, with the kind of rising tide of racial science and, 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 and racial, you know, more aggressive versions of biological racism, um, that, uh, you know, for them, their society was compatible with all this. And that, I think, gave them a crucial element of confidence to make what ultimately was a suicidal leap into the abyss uh, with the Confederacy. Wow. Suicidal jump into the abyss. Wow. I, I, I thank goodness. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, that, that was a, that was a great way to present uh, what, what they did uh, uh, for sure. Um, and so um, and the last part about the Confederacy and, and the civil war, um, what, was their foreign policy like? Um, because I think that's something that that, that I think is uh, valuable for people to to know. In that, how did the Confederacy, as they were as they were assembled with Jefferson Davis as as the president, how did they look outward to get aid in their um, uh, uh, in their conflict? Right, because you know, obviously, you know, wars are a lot of times about alliances, and so how did um, how did the Confederacy look out towards um, the the greater uh, European world to, uh, to to gain allies in their struggle for slavery uh, to to continue? Yeah, there are two parts to that. I think they're interesting. I mean, one which kind of from the detail that I do for um, you know for the antebellum period, but I think I do sort of use it to think about what it what it says as a kind of experiment. Um, sort of along the lines of what you were saying earlier about a, a training ground, that, you know, sort of in reverse, that you can look at the Confederate foreign policy and see a little bit what the late antebellum guys, you know, wanted to do if they had, you know, control of their own state. You know, in effect, they did. It was the United States. But in the Confederacy, they do the same thing. And my argument is, one, for one, for all the talk about expansion and territorial expansion, they were more interested in the preservation of slavery than in the expansion. I mean, you can't, you can't, they didn't want to swallow 
Cuba or northern Mexico and spread slavery uh, if it would endanger the existing slaveholding regime. So they don't want to start, they don't want to get into some kind of conflict with Spain over Cuba. Um, they'd rather sort of make peace with Spain, in fact, say, hey, Spain, you and I, we're both international, you know, we both have an interest in international slavery. Maybe you could sort of, you know, n- nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, allow, uh, you know, allow our blockade runners to, you know, um, resupply in Havana and so on. And they did. You know, Cuba was definitely a site of Confederate, you know, diplomatic and commercial activity during the war. And in that sense, they were not just mindlessly expansionist. They were strategic and they were interested in, you know, building alliances with other slaveholding regimes. So, yeah, so Britain and France at this point had abolished slavery. And so they were, you know, obviously Britain was this sort of anti-slavery power. So how are they going to manage that? Their hope was that the evolution of the British economy, of the global economy over the 40s and 50s had made Britain, you know, even more dependent on slave-produced goods. And Britain was moving in a free trade direction. Britain was uh, moving away from the kind of uh, protectionist policy that that it had had dirt when it it abolished slavery. It had sort of abandoned the West Indies as as a site of of sugar production, you know, that could compete with enslaved sugar production. So they thought that, you know, Britain would maybe not welcome them with open arms, but in a fact, kind of willing to recognize the South and support it because they needed Southern cotton and, and, and be willing to support a slave nation because they needed slave produced goods. And in that, they, they really miscalculated. I mean, I think in that, that sense, A, British anti-slavery was still, despite being muted from the 1830s, it was stronger than they thought. And B, they weren't as important as they thought they were. Um, you know, this is, and this is sort of Sven Beckert's book about how Britain was able to reconstitute, um, you know, cotton production all around the world in Brazil, in Egypt, in India, um, without, they didn't actually need the slave south to, to sort of, you know, cotton, what, cotton, cotton may have been king, but slavery wasn't emperor, you know, which is how Southerners thought it, thought about it. They thought that, that what was cotton without, what was King Cotton without emperor slavery? You can't, all the other places that have tried to grow slave, cotton without slaves have failed. So nobody can compete with us. Slavery is true king. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. I mean, Britain was able to sort of produce cotton uh, with reasonable degree of efficiency um, using other, again, using other sort of coercive legal measures, using a racialized form of labor, absolutely, uh, in, in places like India and, and in Egypt. Um, but it didn't require chattel slavery. It didn't require the ownership of other human beings. Um, and in that sense, you know, slaveholders were, you know, they were wrong about, um, uh, about their own capacity on the world stage in a kind of critical way. And they did not receive this sort of support assistance from Britain uh, that they were counting on. And, you know, in a sense that that doomed their, their struggle. That's when they, when they landed at the bottom of that this in 1865. Wow. And that, and I think that's, and I'm glad that I did ask that final point because I think that sometimes that people don't really realize, you know, like they may hear about the Confederacy when it comes to like, you know, they, uh, when it comes to their actual uh, domestic policy, um, and obviously, directly, you know, it's a it's a war administration directly for the four years. Uh, but also they have they're looking out. They're trying to seek, you know, partners to be able to help them. And, um, and you know, we were talking about this offline when it came to Sarah Parker Riemann when she's in 1862 in in, uh, in London, um, you know, speaking uh, 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 to uh, British you know, folks and folks largely in the convention that she was at talking about how, well, hey, if y'all are actually supposedly the friends of the Negro, that um, the best thing you can do is just butt out of the conflict. You're good over here, you know, chill out on the side, grab a spot of (laughs) tea and you'll be good. Uh, But please do not get into this conflict. And so, um, you know, she was performing a sort of abolitionist a uh, 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 black woman abolitionist diplomacy, as I, as I characterize, and so you know, I think it's it's very important to bring about you know the competing uh, um, uh, uh, di- diplomacies, really. Um, and I think I think one of the things that I enjoyed the most about your book is that um, I, for one, I was never. Uh, an early Americanist. And to me, early America went all the way up until the Civil War. You know, I know that might not literally be the thing, but in my mind, in undergrad, I was like, I don't know how the hell y'all deal with this like stuff. Like this, this is not cool. This is boring as hell. <laughs> but as typically happens when you say stuff at 18, 19 and 20, when you're 22, 23, 24, and maybe even later in life, you're like, ah, yeah, let, let's scratch that noise. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm cool in this era. And I can kind of, 
now you're writing about diplomacy in the 18, you know, 30s. So yeah, exactly. are you right? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, that's why I think this book is so great because I kind of felt the same way about diplomatic history. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what do what you got? What got to be in like the uh, foreign service or something? Got to be like in the Peace Corps or something like that. Uh, but I was like, no, like there's some valuable, there's some valuable work that's being conducted that um, is not simply kind of like, I guess, at least in my novel eyes, like a very... Um, kind of boring, kind of very clustered. Right. I mean, yeah. I think what you're, what you're speaking to is what I was saying about, you know, the way in which a certain style of traditional diplomatic history was written that kind of abstracted it from major political ideological issues like slavery. Um, and I think, I think that's true that some of that older scholarship was written in that vein and that, you know, there's a reason uh, not to excuse your inexcusable ignorance and youth, uh, <laughs> but uh, but 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 yeah. But I mean, I think that, I, th- I think that's a fair point. And what you said about you know Sarah Riemann, I mean, that's interesting. We could I hope we can continue to talk about that later. But um, the question of pro-slavery and anti-slavery diplomacy and internationalism that and also diplomacy that's outside of state governments, right? Like Sarah Riemann is in. England lobbying the British government, not as a representative of the U.S. government, but she's still doing diplomacy. And, you know, slaveholders were doing that too, in official, unofficial and official, unofficial and official capacities. Um, you know, this is a, this is a, a global struggle, at least a transatlantic struggle, specifically, you know, in the 1860s when it comes to intervention, you know, in the American Civil War, you know, British, British abolition, American slavery. Um, and, and yeah, both sides have their, you know, their, you know, their European brigades in effect, uh, who are going both officially and unofficially. Absolutely. And, and so, um, in, in the final couple minutes that we have with you today, um, can you speak, uh, uh to what your, uh, so because this book, uh, completed what in 2016, um, I believe 2016, 2016, very important with the election. I see what <laughs> yeah. you're doing there. Um, and well, so, I just want that extra year. I, want, I, want, yeah, I, want that extra so year. I don't want you to say, hey, it's been three years, Carp. Where's your next book? I, want, I, want, I would say, no, it hasn't even been two years, sir. <laughs> Fall 2016. Not, not, yeah, not I, I beat Trump by two, two months. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Oh wow, wow! That we, we thank God we got we got one win. We got one win. Um, and so, um, and so with that being said, what else are you working on uh, going forward into uh, uh, twenty nineteen and twenty twenty? I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Twenty twenty. We'll see. We'll see. That would be that would be good. Um, yeah, I'm I'm working on a. It's funny. We you know you talk about anti slavery diplomacy. I'm working on anti slavery politics. Uh, before the Civil War, specifically the, the Republican Party. I mean, I think what interested me in 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 um, in this moment we were just talking about secession is how kind of unyielding the Republicans were when it came to the things that you know these pro-slavery uh, leaders really wanted in terms of, of pro-slavery foreign policy. And it made me you know kind of want to go back and you know give uh, the Republican Party another 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 look. Uh, you know, as a party that I think in a lot of ways was a lot more revolutionary, uh, a lot more radical than uh, we're inclined to give it credit because they weren't, um, you know, they weren't um, the kind of most uh, aggressive abolitionists uh, in the Union at the time in the 1850s. But nevertheless, they represented a, a really a fundamental change in the American political system that I think a lot of abolitionists actually recognized was going to shake the system up. People like Frederick Douglass, um, people like, uh, you know, e- even abolitionists who are hostile to party politics. Politics like Wendell Phillips sort of recognized that the Republican Party was going to was bound to was it was a game changer in American politics, and, I, and I'm interested in how anti-slavery sort of went from the, a radical fringe from the the sort of far margins of American political life, which is really where it was for the first you know. 50 years of, of the American public to uh, first 50, 60 years to really taking, uh, informing, having significant influence over uh, the federal government in, you know, a handful of years in the 1850s. Um, so that's the next book. It's, a, it's obviously a big one. It's more, I think, domestic than, it, than the first book. It's more about, you know, what was going on in the United States in the political struggle over slavery. Um, but I mean, for, 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 you know, African-American studies, uh, listeners, I mean, I think one, one element that I'm really interested in, in, in uncovering is, is the, the, the amount of the, 
degree to which Republicans actually before the war gained support from African-American abolitionists and that there were, you know, we think about black Republicans in Reconstruction. You know, you had dozens of black, you know, pol- you know, congressmen, senators, governors, state legislators, hundreds, really. Um, but there were black Republicans before the war, too. I mean, Douglas was one of them. He was ambivalent about the party, but he supported it. There were a lot of other ones. John Mercer Langston. Uh, in Ohio, his brother Charles Mercer Langston, uh, his brother Charles Langston, um, you know, William Nell gave the party a lot of support. Um, you know, the, the degree to which African Americans themselves mobilized behind uh, the Republican Party, I think, has has been forgotten to an extent in in the literature. So I'm still at the beginning of this project, but that's an aspect that I'm interested in 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 uh, in, in pursuing. Well, hey. Um... I will definitely be happy to, uh, to to speak to you on that particular project, um, especially because uh, a lot of our uh, uh, interests um, historically are very much uh, aligned. Um, and so I guess I will take on the onus of the foreign policy and uh, I'll return you the domestic uh, with this. With this <laughs> OK, yeah, exactly. I'll pick your brain on the domestic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Lord knows, I'll pick your brain yeah. on, the, uh, the, on the foreign policy aspect. And so um, with that being said, um, is there a way that um, uh, uh, scholars and, and other listeners to, to the podcast can get in touch with you um, to maybe ask you some questions about the book and, and other aspects of of yeah. your um of your career i mean um, i am on twitter although i've been kind of in a dark mode uh the past year as i struggle to get this tenure file in uh it's hard to write it's hard to write a book and tweet at the same time i found that really hard uh, it's easy to promote a book and tweet but it's harder to write a book and tweet so um <laughs> yeah that's been it's been it's been a struggle so i kind of went off uh, although i still check the account so you know people message me there but also you know my email uh my university email is you know mj carp at princeton uh, and I'd be happy to hear from from uh, from listeners. Very good. And so with that being said, Dr. Carp, we uh, definitely appreciate your time. And once again, we have we've had the opportunity to chat with uh, assistant professor of history at Princeton University, Matthew Carp, for his book published in 2016 through Harvard University Press uh, entitled This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. And uh, once again, thank you for your time. And we'll definitely uh, talk to you, maybe even in 2020 with another election coming we'll up. We'll but see. We, we, shall can, see. We, can get Kanye, we shall see. We can get Kanye in next time. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey. Kanye <laughs> 2020 or 2020. Exactly. <laughs> All righty. Until next time, New Books in African American Studies. Linda Sooners, this is your host, Adam McNeil. Until next time.